Welcome to the YPO Leadership Development Network's Leader of Leaders podcast series, hosted by Dr. Terrence Kamal. We engage in open discussions with our YPO members who share their leadership journeys, experiences, and lessons. We discuss everything from leading startups and family businesses to international multi-million dollar entities. In the second part of the Only in YPO discussion, we engage in informed discussions that include the successes, failures, struggles, and trade-offs in their journey. Dave, this is Terence from the Leadership Network, and I, you know, it's fantastic to have you as part of our leadership and the board. I'm quite excited for this conversation and, and the things we could explore. Thanks, thanks for making the time. Terence, great to talk with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great stuff. Dave, at a high level, take us a little bit through your journey. What We know you YPO, you've been amazingly successful as a, as a peer, as a colleague, as a mentor, but where did this all start? Take us, take us to the beginning, as far back as you want to go. So I started working part-time at a radio station when I was 15 years old and started to learn about the work world and basically um, moved from doing full-time uh, high school and then full-time university to doing part-time university and part-time high school oh, so wow. I could work full-time, learn about the work world, and I benefited from a scholarship. So I graduate with my degree. And what I learned in the world of broadcast and then started to work at radio and TV stations is that um, talent, on-air talent, evaporates very quickly. And I saw people at 40 years old starting on their way down from the big cities of New York or Tokyo or whatever. And I said, wait, I don't want that. And I learned that sales was where it was in the whole broadcast world. That led me on a journey to get an MBA. Um, freshly minted MBA started managing radio stations. And I said, wait a minute. If I just go into management, I'm not going to learn reality of how money is made. Yeah. So I went to my boss and I said, will you please assign me a commission sales job? And he said, wow. you're crazy. And I said, no, I'm not. I want to learn what it's like to be on commission. So I moved to Dallas, Texas in the center of the U.S. and started selling airtime and learned a lot about hearing the word no and started to learn about how to understand people's needs. And that was a journey that then morphed into the internet, becoming CEO of an internet company, uh, a public company, then moved back to the private side, ran private internet companies until fast forward. I'm at a YPO forum and my forum mate, Blake Kirby says, dude, you need to go see the shaman. And I said, what? Yeah. He said, you need to go see the shaman. I said, Blake, dude, I'm running a multinational company. I don't have time to see the shaman. I don't even know what a shaman does. Yeah. And he said, dude. So he kept asking me for a year. And I'm very grateful to YPO because the forum intimate experience allowed him to see into me to realize I needed to go see a shaman. So I go to see the shaman. And I said to the shaman, I, I'm on the clock. I'm really busy. Can you just do the shaman stuff? And yeah. tell me, tell me, tell me what's what. Um, I'm a fast learner. And the shaman is a woman probably, oh, I don't know, 70 years old, probably uh, 5'2", so considerably shorter than I am, with twinkly blue eyes, and says, oh, it's okay. I just have one question for you. And I said, okay, what's the one question? She said, if time and money and resources, if time, money, and resources are absolutely unlimited, you have all you want, what's your ideal life? look like. Draw it. I'm not an artist. Draw it in symbols with your non-dominant hand. 
So for me, my left hand. And I thought, well, first of all, that's a crazy ask. Second of all, I was not in the world of thinking about if time and money and resources were unlimited. Go through a six-month journey to try to answer that one question and knock all of my stories out of the way. I have to work for private equity or I have to be a CEO because I have a Harvard MBA or whatever. Knock, I have to make a million dollars a year. I have to, I have to, I have to. Knock all that crap out of the way and try to address the question. And the answer for me was my satisfaction, my ideal world is in partnering with people and experiencing together with them their growth on their journey. And that's where I derive the greatest satisfaction. So then the question was, what do I do with that information? And for me, what that became was um, it launched into an executive coaching business to work directly with CEOs. And I said to her, who will I get as clients? Like nobody's ever called me up and said, gee, I want to be coached by you. And what's the business model? So we developed a business model and lo and behold, the universe delivers clients and began to build a successful coaching business and obviously going into debt to do it because you don't start out and have like any business <laughs> swimming in the cash. Yeah. And so that really worked. And I began to see changes in the lives, just fundamental changes in the lives of my clients that they chose, not because I told them what to do. I just asked questions. And that was huge. And I realized um, there was an opportunity to have a larger impact as well. And so developed a second company that works with leadership teams on achieving potential, team potential, to create extraordinary results for companies. And so set up a second company to do that and um, created content for um, both courses, but more importantly, created leadership techniques that people can use to get out of their own way to leverage other people. So my, I feel like my called purpose is to um, leverage full potential in other people. And they do it. I just ask the questions, but I have certain tools and techniques. Sure. So the journey has been escaping from the world of public company CEO and large private company to apply those gifts that I believe that I have, that I've been told, really work for other people. And I feel like I stopped working six years ago. I haven't worked a day since. I do what I love. And part of that is meeting YPOs around the world and speaking at different chapters and regional boards, for example, in Africa, um, speaking at chapter levels, network levels, to share some of these techniques and some of these ideas. So I'm blessed beyond belief. Um, and that's, that's been the journey. YPO is integral part of that journey every step of the way. I've been, in, I feel like a refugee sometimes. I've been in... Um, Four different chapters. I have uh, been at multiple GLCs. I've been day chair of events around the world with Hospitality Network, chair of the Hospitality Network. I'm involved now, obviously, in Leadership Development Network, um, chair of the Music Network, and sat on um, events committee, sat on International Networks Committee, and just met great people that have encouraged me along the way. That's absolutely fantastic. Dave, take me through that journey with your family. Obviously, it's been a journey for them too. What has been that, that journey with them? Because there's obviously been massive change. You know, it, it's, it may sound easy to say, I came home one day and things changed. But how did you take the journey and take them along with you? Yeah, it's an interesting transition because, um, first of all, when I was running multinational companies, um, our kids were young and growing up. And sometimes I felt like I was the ATM. My time with them was so limited. My job was to generate the cash so that we could save for college and all those other things. 
And thanks to their mom, they turned out to be pretty well-formed human adults. And so when I made this transition, they were either just in college or just leaving college. And I think my wife got tired of seeing me around the house because I'd never actually been there before yeah. and quickly realized I needed an office and a place to, to go and do and be. And so she's been incredibly supportive as we racked up the debt to launch these two businesses. And along the way, she has also been on her own journey, which has been one of getting her master's degree in education, then becoming a teacher of teachers. And ironically, she taught me how adults learn the fundamentals of adult education, much of which you see applied at the very best YPO uh, sessions. And I was able to learn from her and use those towards our business. So the impact on the family, they've been supportive. And actually what has happened in a curious twist, about two years ago, our daughter, who is uh, now 29 years old, came to me and said, Dad, I want to work for you. And here's a contract. And she prepared a contract for me and said, I want, you to, I want you to hire me because here's what I have to offer. And she'd been through significant management training. Her um, orientation is HR. And I actually agreed to hire her despite all the horror stories I'd heard through years of forum about family business and yeah. how horrible family business is. And so she is of a very different, uh, she's a classic millennial. And we clash sometimes over values and styles. But for the most part, it's incredibly satisfying because she has a different way of thinking than I do. And we're able to complement each other as colleagues. Although it's also a pressure to work with your family because sometimes she lives in, uh, she lives uh, a two hours jet flight away. Um, sometimes it's challenging because she'll say to me, dad, this weekend, I'm going to come home and I do not want you to talk about work at all. Zip it. Because <laughs> I don't feel like it's work. Yeah. And so it's been significant for the family. And so we'll meet up at clients' locations. We'll fly to Detroit and, and do a session together for clients or Arizona or uh, Philippines. And so it's been great fun um, for us to learn how to work together and leverage each other's strengths. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fantastic. And that would lead into the next question of, that sounds like a success, but have you run into any challenges with millennial thinking? With, with a large volume of industry now being millennials, uh, me being one of them on that cusp of millennials. What's been the transition? Maybe what are some of the nuances and challenges we may have seen along the way? Uh, yes. Um, it's interesting because it's not just millennials. It's also difference in personalities. And so when you combine different personalities plus different generations plus different sets of beliefs, sometimes it gets very strained. For example, I, um, as a boomer, I will think, you know, you've got to put heads down and you've got to um, do this work and the office is where the work is done and all these other stories. Whereas for um, my daughter and other millennials, work gets done continuously. It's not like there's a work day. You're as likely to, to read emails Saturday afternoon at three, which I am too, as you are in the office. <laughs> but they define work as happening anywhere and anytime. And so that really creates interesting challenges. I remember I facilitated a conversation about this with a food and beverage network at an annual event in, um, I believe it was in Nashville or somewhere in Tennessee. And the issue came up, how come these millennials want to leave the office early? My back room millennials want to leave the office early and like Friday afternoon at three. 
And I tell them, we're working till five, or they want to show up at 10 in the morning. And I say, no, we start at eight. You know, what's up with that? And um, the issue is very real. And I think what needs to happen is we need to rethink how and where work gets done and allow millennials to suggest to us methods they can use that work for us. Um, Another example from, um, I think it was from Retail Network. No, it was was also from Food and Beverage, where um, a YPO member wrote me and said, hey, um, how do I deal with this mobile phone thing? Like, I have um, uh, the receptionist at one of my restaurants who, when there aren't customers around, will go down and text on our mobile phone. Should I ban mobile phones? And another YPO joined the conversation and said, I make them lock up their phones in the locker and they can only look at them on breaks. So mobile phones are tied to the identity of millennials. So how we think about a policy that's constructive is really important to us as leaders. And what I would recommend is start with criteria. How do you know, what are the characteristics of a great decision as we set up a policy for mobile phones? What are the characteristics of a great decision? And then share those characteristics with your millennials. Tell them what you're trying to achieve and ask them what good solutions are. So as opposed to doing unto them, ask them what the good solutions are and start your learning process. And that's what's working for on the, on the process and the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's actually profound. That's fantastic. Tell me about this. Obviously, you've now got a multi-generational family business that's all, all intimately involved. What were you, some of your concerns of, of having a family business? As, as you mentioned, you have advice around that, but what were some of the concerns around it that were in your mind at that point and maybe how we overcame that? When there are uh, gaps in performance or when something is not done correctly or done the way I would do it, it's much harder to provide that feedback to a family member than it is to a person that is uh, just in a professional relationship. And so that was a fear. Turns out to be well-founded fear. And what I've learned to do is to ask myself, what's really important here? It's not how would I do it. It's what's really important. And if it's not done in the way that I wanted it done, where did I fail as a leader to set clear criteria? Where did I fail? Because I can't tell, if if you want a good employee, you can't tell them what to do. You can tell them what the outcome is and negotiate criteria and allow them to apply their own experience. So I was fearful about providing feedback that would be um, sometimes harsh. And it caused me to go through this learning process of, what was my role in the outcome that I didn't want? Wow. So you essentially have to own a lot of that process of, of managing it going forward. Yes. That sounds like a very forum kind of answer to me. <laughs> it's yeah, a very well, internal process. It, it is, and it's born of a lot of pain and learning. So I'm learning, I'm, fortu- I'm fortunate I'm being taught by millennials all the time. Yeah. That's absolutely super. Dave, while you're on the topic and you mentioned pain, what was this most significant challenges? I mean, you've run various businesses and if you could mention maybe two or three of them, whether they be public, private, or what you do now, what were those challenges that you experienced and then how how you focused on overcoming those from, from a leadership journey perspective? Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made as CEO of a multinational company was um, we were a venture-backed company and we competed against um, a lot of different size players. But the largest competitor for our global product was a very large telecommunications company, in fact, the largest in the world. 
And they said to us, um, hey, will you please come visit us at our headquarters? So I go to their headquarters and visit them with my chairman. And they said, uh, we'd like to buy your business. I said, oh, okay, great. Isn't this what we all dream about? And yeah. they offered a price that was about half the value of what the market value was of the business. And so the chairman and I talked about it um, afterward. But the last thing they said before we left was, if you don't accept our offer, um, we will, it was words like, we will make you wish you had or something oh. like that. So it was the threat of, um, we'll crush you if you don't accept the offer. But in the marketplace, we were winning business from them and causing uh, loss of face. And we were winning business without having to resort to price competition. And so I felt really good about that. Chairman and I have a long talk and we say, you know what? It doesn't make sense to our shareholders to sell at half the value. What we didn't know at the time was that they had purchased patents that were about to expire or patents for our British speaking friends. They were about (laughs) to expire. And um, they were going to sue us for patent infringement on one quarter of 1% of our internet traffic, okay. which we could, we could do a workaround really easily. What, and that's all technically correct. There's no patent violation in that case. What I did not appreciate was the, the amount of cash that they were willing to put into lawsuits. Um, it was rounding error to them. It was huge money for us. So we ended up spending millions of dollars a month defending one suit that we knew that the lawyers assured us, you're not in violation, it's fine, we'll win, we just need to hire four more experts at a quarter million a pop. (laughs) And so basically, the company declared bankruptcy. um, You were a competitor? No, us. Our competitor is still alive today, they just used the US legal system as a foreign company to bludgeon us to death. So we would quit causing them grief. And that's that's long and the short of it. So the painful lesson was, you know, when you have somebody with a lot more resources, think how you would use their resources if you were them. And as opposed to thinking about the customer in the marketplace, um, consider from their point of view what you would do with their resources and how they'd use it against you. So it was a David and Goliath, and um, Goliath crushed David. Ironically, I'm David and learned a painful lesson, but it also allowed me to be where I am today. How does it speak to what you do in your current business? And how, do, how does that speak to you, where you are as an individual in, in the bigger picture? It speaks to me to be really curious and to try to live into other people's reality. And so the, the real benefit and the, the, um, one of the things that we explore with our clients is what is the other person's reality? What does their world look like? What are they thinking and experiencing? And I'll give you an example. I talked to a YPO this morning just before this interview who was CEO of a company, successful company, was furious with his sales manager because at 1 a.m. Thursday morning, he sent an email saying, the monthly sales are terrible. Here's the data. Let's do a call Friday. I'd like to get your analysis of this. Didn't hear anything back. Friday gets an email from the sales manager saying, just as a reminder, I'm on family holiday uh, today. I will look at the data and be ready for a discussion on Monday. Wow. And my my client was furious because he felt like, you're not taking this seriously. I sent you the data. You weren't ready for a call on Friday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that led to a discussion of, do we understand the world as he sees it? Does he use email um, as the way to contact him for the most urgent things? Does he see the time pressure the way you do? And it's really, how do we get inside the sales manager's head, which will allow us to be a much more effective leader? 
And so that's an example of if I had used that advice and given that advice to myself back in the past, yeah. I would have said, what would I do in their shoes? And how would I use all the resources? Forget winning in the marketplace. They didn't win in the marketplace. They used the legal system and they used lawyers' bills to crush a competitor. And that was pretty smart. Yeah. Very painful as the David, <laughs> but very smart. Indeed. And you see, you see that quite often everywhere, and even you know, even outside of the U.S. If you have complex legal systems, it's it's a whole the Stalingrad kind of tactic. Keep going, you know. In South Africa, we've had a similar context with our former president. He used every possible resource to stall litigation for ten years, and to date, every time there's an appealable technicality, he's going to take it. And there are those yes. who will just keep going with the process, whether it's political or business wise, which which is yes. an interesting nuance. And, and the ability to influence who's the judge is also um, <laughs> quite an advantage. Amazingly, in South Africa, you don't have that. Uh, just just really? a quick comment on that is he had been instrumental in focusing on appointing the chief justice because we have high courts, then we have the Supreme mm-hmm. Court of Appeal, and we have a central court called the Constitutional Court, which is, focuses everything through a constitutional lens. And when he appointed the chief justice, everyone said it's in his favor. Now, ironically, in nine out of 10 judgments, he ruled against the president. So much so, said he failed his oath of office on more than one occasion. So we've got a very strong judiciary. In, 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 in some places, you know, there is this perspective of saying it's Africa, but we have a very strong judiciary that has told parliament many times, here's the door and you're wrong. So it is really, really interesting to see. And there are some places where you can influence the judges. I think in, in some contexts here, the judiciary has been primarily due to save the democracy. Nice. Quite interesting. Tell well, me- that's a story of, of courage and heart and hope, which Indeed. is great. Yeah. And because we've got that separation of once you're appointed as a judge, you have salary for life, which is similar to elsewhere, is the Chief Justice has been very vocal of saying, if we don't, and that's been my biggest focus, is history will judge you. You'll get away today, you'll get away for a decade. But how do you answer your kids? How do you answer your friends? How do you answer those who aren't going to ask anyway? And eventually, how do you face yourself in that process? Because that's going to be your final journey between yourself to yourself. But, mm-hmm. but back to your journey, although there's a lot of uh, you know, enjoyment in the process, to someone new, especially when we're talking to millennials, and it may not necessarily be millennials, you have a lot of peers that are, are, are older than millennials, but new to the leadership journey and the leadership game. What would be your advice through the lens and the experience you've been through? All of your success, all of your performance will come from the work of other people. And so your job as a leader is to practice a model we call authentically curious leadership, which means your role as a leader is to make sure you're really clear on desired outcome. You're really clear on beginning the discussion about criteria and to allow each individual to apply their own experience. Resist the temptation to show them what to do or how to do that. Allow them to discover their own journey. Because in so doing, they'll be much more committed and much more successful. And if their experience is not able to be applied to your desired outcome, then find them another role. Elsewhere or in your company, it doesn't matter. But allow them to be successful. Because by allowing others to be successful, you will attract more people and more talent and be more successful yourself. Fantastic. Very, very well articulated. Sounds like you do this really, really regularly. (laughs) Uh, Once or twice. Indeed. Dave, in terms of significance of, and I know you mentioned a few examples, but 
if there were to be one or two key times in which YPO has added phenomenal value to you, your family, and your business in, in, in the various spheres, what were they? Yeah, I think um, one is the opportunities for amazing international learning experiences through universities. So if I think about our son, who's now a, um, a U.S. Air Force uh, fighter jet pilot, he was um, curious about the military, and we went to Scotland University, and they spent a night in the woods with the uh, basically the elite military of Scotland, chasing chickens, strangling chickens, stripping chickens, eating chickens. And you have a 12-year-old boy who's interested in the military going out with real officers to do that. And it's memorable and it changes lives. Or on African safari, our daughter at 12 or 14 years old having an elephant trunk come over her shoulder. And it looks like to a human, looks like a kiss when they wrap around. Um, she will never forget that for as long as she lives. So the opportunity to learn and meet um, YPRs from around the world, meet their kids from around the world and relate as families enriched our family and changed our children's journey such that um, when our son was about 15 or so, he had to face uh, a choice of which second language to take. And uh, he came home one day. I said, hey, what, what's up with school? He said, I had to choose a second language. I said, what did you choose? He said, Mandarin. Wow. He said, because I learned through The Economist and through discussions with other YPOers that China is one of the countries of the future. And I want to be equipped for my lifetime, not your lifetime. And I thought, this is our kid. But it's thanks to YPO and those family experiences. Yeah. Wow. And, and you know, it, the more we speak about this, Dave, the more you start to realize is, and that's been my experience with my, my peers, and I'm, I'm far more junior than you in YPO, is it's the personal experience more than the business connection. It's, it's more about the, the personal connections, the relationship, the family, the humanness of, of that outside of everything else, which is phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. Dave, and in moving just slightly into the context of YPO 3.0, my understanding was, and I had the privilege of, of spending time with our peers when, when we did the first almost semi-official event at, at Davos earlier this year. And through that, I, I see at the same time three, the 3.0 strategy of business for impact or what are we doing outside of our current spheres. Tell me about what your business do, and a lot of what you do sounds like it's already outside of your spheres of influence, but what are you doing for your non-shareholder stakeholders, so your communities in the broader picture? I know you've mentioned a bit in YPO, but anything in, in, in a macro context outside of that, that, that may be relevant. Sure. In addition, um, so a lot of YPOers and, and ourselves included write checks. So we have a family trust and we write checks to causes that we believe in that are focused on children and the arts. But writing checks is almost an easy and, you know, brainless thing to do. It's wonderful, yeah. um, but it's not really investing in yourself. The things I've done um, that I think give back to the community are working with and donating a fair amount of time to a center that was funded by uh, W.L. Gore. So Bill Gore, who invented Gore-Tex, um, all the Gore-Tex products. And so he believed that corporations had an opportunity and organizations had an opportunity to redefine how they do work. So there's a center for innovative cultures that I donate time to and work with. And I serve on the board of a local business school to help them define how to compete in this uh, world of um, the world where 
uh, it's not really economically worthwhile to take on huge debt to go get a degree and expect that you're going to get a lot of economic value from it. So how do you redefine what education looks like? Um, so I give back time to different causes, um, whether it's um, working uh, largely around education. And so donate uh, time and effort and resource into that in different community endeavors. Wow, that's phenomenal. Dave, very quickly, and I'm just going to bounce back over a few topics as I'm just milling our discussion, is you mentioned you did an MBA, an amazing Ivy League MBA at some point. But looking back, because a lot of a lot of the millennials, a lot of peers we talk to quite often are saying, well, I plan to do another degree. I plan to do this. But in contrast to that, you've shared a lot of your successes being your relationships, your learning, your travels, and your peership. Through the lens of where you've been, where do you position uh, an MBA in this context? And specifically, do you see its value and its relevance change or transition over the last decade or two? I think that MBAs were uh, perhaps, and this may be heresy, I think MBAs were perhaps more impactful in the era where you go to a company and plan to be there 30 years. So if you go to a big mining company and you'll be an executive there for 30 years, the MBA is probably incredibly useful. Um, The traditional MBA, perhaps less useful for entrepreneurs or people who plan to make a lot of changes in their life or work in the gig economy and have three uh, different jobs. That said, I've seen some really um, innovative programs that take the place of MBAs. For example, in the U.S., Goldman Sachs and Warren Buffett got together, recognized that the jobs that are created in the U.S. are mostly from small business, not larger businesses, and that it was very hard for small business owners to get an MBA because of time and debt. And so they set up a program, um, and I may bludgeon the name, but it's something like 10,000 small businesses. And what they do is they have business owners compete for slots and then do a year-long education program that meets maybe a day a month and pick up skills they can apply in their business, and it's free. So for the cost of nothing, you get what amounts to a mini MBA that's applicable to your business. And I think it's an incredible program, and it's a redefinition. I think there are skills in the MBA program that are really valuable. And I think if a person were to ask themselves where, what kind of skills do they lack, um, they can go get specific courses. And I think the specific courses and learning how to think is more important than the degree itself. What I learned from my MBA, which is a case method MBA, um, so it wasn't a lecture method, it was case method, was how to think and how many different points of view you can bring to bear on the same issue. Kind of like forum where you have eight or 10 mates sitting around and they all know the answer, but all answers are different. And ultimately you have the answer. Correct. Correct. Dave, thank you so much for your time. But in trying to summarize, what would be your leadership message of your journey to to our peers and and to non-YPOers who want to aspire to join this amazing organization? That if you are willing to incorporate the gifts of all the people around you, anything is possible. Your potential is unlimited as long as you're clear on where it is you want to go and how it is you judge success. Money is interesting, but money is a measure that follows success. It isn't success. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, And we look forward to, to chatting to you in the future. Thank you for joining us. In the next show, we share more insights and discussions with members in the YPO Leadership Development Network's Leader of Leaders podcast series. 